13 years ago, I was working for a Christian parachurch ministry. And I was given a book as part of my training called More Ready Than You Realize, Evangelism as Dance in the Postmodern Matrix. If ever there was a title that made you want to punch yourself in the face, that's probably <laughs> it. Uh, but there were more serious issues. Uh, the premise of the book uh, is that evangelism should be done like dancing. So you invite someone to join you in discussion. You learn together while you gently lead them along. At no time are you to be forceful or argumentative. You know, you don't jerk a dance partner around. You gently lead and you kind of do this together. So it's to be this nice and, kinda, and flowing experience. We had a group discussion about the book, and my comment was, uh, the book never mentions the need for repentance anywhere, uh, at any time, which you know is odd for a book on evangelism. Now, if you knew me back then, and some of you did, uh, you know that discernment was not my greatest asset. Uh, so I'm not saying this to, to, to let you know how insightful I, I was. That's not the point at all. In fact, I'm sure there were much more serious issues with the book even than that that I completely missed. Um, but after this discussion, the leader uh, came to me and said, uh, we need more thinkers like you in our organization. Well, at the time, of course, that made me feel pretty good about myself. But in hindsight, all that does is illustrate just how far the ministry had fallen from the Bible's teaching. That it took a hack honestly, like me, uh, to be able to see this and point this out and, and to be commended for it. Repentance is not in vogue. When, when the Christian message begins to be compromised, you can be sure that repentance is going to be one of the first things to go. In fact, there are many churches who, you know, who believe that Jesus died and rose again for, for sinners, who are pretty conservative in their ethics, um, who, who, who believe these things. But when it comes time to respond to the, the news of Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, they'll say something like, ask Jesus into your heart. Uh, yeah, you know, acknowledge you're sinful. You need to acknowledge you've sinned, yes, but just, just ask him in. Just make this decision for Christ. Which is a, it's a far cry from repentance. Uh, to, to call people to biblical repentance presumes a number of things. One, that they're wrong, the person you're calling to repentance, that something about them is wrong, that, there's, uh, that they must acknowledge their guilt before God, that God is holy, they must, they're to mourn their rebellion against God, that God's ways are right and their ways are wrong, and these are things that don't make for a pleasant dance or for a pleasant conversation sometimes. It's easier to just have people say they're sorry uh, so they can go to heaven. And like a child who isn't penitent, people will say sorry to God if it means they can have eternal life. I just have to say sorry. Okay. But that's not repentance. 
Of course, shying away from the Bible's teaching on repentance is not a new problem. The prophets of the Old Testament came preaching repentance because nobody else was, and it was needed. The people thought everything was fine. Oh, sure, sure, yeah, we're not perfect, but we have the temple. But the prophets came, and they were preaching repentance. In 1932, uh, so 86 years ago, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones traced many of the problems of the Welsh and English churches to the fact that repentance was not proclaimed, it was not taught, it was missing in the churches. Here, he says, was a basic, fundamental, biblical teaching, a first principle, he called it, that was absent from the churches. So it was no wonder that was, there was a host of other problems if one of these most basic things was missing completely. And, and uh, just this morning, to illustrate this lack of uh, repentance being taught, uh, was an article I came across in the Globe of Mail touting this, uh, this fairly new church in Toronto um, that's uh, hipster and, and great uh, describing what goes on at the church. And I just want to read something. This is after the part where they talk about crowd surfing at their Christmas party. Um, the church's upbeat, easygoing style attracted many of the parishioners at its West End campus. And then they quote a, a fellow who goes there. Quote, the, the big thing here is people come and they don't feel pressured to be anything other than who they are, said Jonathan Lee, 30 years old. It's more about having people do life together. And it doesn't get better. But that is, I mean, that is a different message, right, than repentance. We can just come here, there's no pressure to be anything other than you are. Right? That's a different message than repentance. I mean, we're not saying we celebrate hypocrisy here, be some, pretend you're something you're not. That's not what we're saying. But when repentance implies there's a problem, that if you're going to come, you need to get right with the Lord. There is a problem here. You can't just be as you are and approach God any old way. That's problematic. And so repentance, it's, it's, it's one of the first things to go as the Christian message, the gospel, starts to become compromised. So I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 3. And we're going to look at the necessity of Repentance. Repentance is essential for one to be in a right relationship with God. So it's the opposite of something we can dispense with. It's essential. And so it, it makes it all the more troubling when it's lacking. So turn with me to Luke chapter 3. We're going to begin a new section in the book of Luke today. Um, and this section, so the first two chapters... If you know, where the story of the birth of Christ and the birth of John the Baptist, these infancy narratives, and then last week we looked at Jesus' story from when he was 12 years old. And now in chapter 3, we're jumping ahead several years to the beginning of John's ministry. Uh, and this section goes until 4.13, and this is all about the preparation, uh, John's preparing of the people, and then Jesus' arrival on the scene, so to speak, his baptism, and then in 4.14, Jesus begins his earthly ministry. So this is the next section uh, that starts here in Luke 3.1. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. 
And we're going to see that John was a preacher of repentance. We associate him with baptism, right? He gets the name John the Baptist, and partly that's to distinguish him from the disciple John, and also because he did baptize people. And baptism clearly is, is, is very important. Um, but if I could pick a word to summarize his ministry and to summarize his preaching, it would be repent, repentance. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks. And today we're looking at how repentance is essential for one to be in a right relationship with God. And there's just really two points to this sermon uh, today. Uh, repentance was John's message, verses 1 to 3. And repentance is God's message, verses 4 to 6. So I invite you to read with me uh, the first six verses of chapter 3. Luke writes, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So as mentioned, the last story we looked at last week in chapter 2 is about Jesus when he was 12 years old. And now the scene jumps ahead some 18 years. And Luke gives us the historical situation into which John uh, begins his ministry. It's the same historical situation that Jesus also will uh, live his earthly ministry in. So Tiberius Caesar, he took over after Caesar Augustus died uh, in the year 14 AD, uh, which places this somewhere around 29 AD. Luke also mentions the rulers in and around um, the, uh, that, the area that was historically Israel. Uh, so so when, when Jesus and John were born, if you'll remember, there was a king named Herod, Herod the Great. We remember Herod the Great. He ruled all of this territory. Um, but after his death, which I, I think was in the year 4 AD, this region was split up between his three sons who were given the title of Tetrarch. Uh, it's a bit odd, Tetrarch is the idea of a fourth, but there's three sons, but that's what they're given the title, Tetrarch. So then two of them are mentioned here. Philip receives this Iteria and Trachonitis, which is in the north. And then Herod, this is Herod Antipas, was given the region of Galilee. And so this is the Herod that we'll factor in later. He's the Herod that has John arrested. He's the Herod that Jesus stands before, before his crucifixion, when he's on trial. It's the Herod that Jesus at one time calls a fox. Uh, so this is Herod. He, he has the region of Galilee. And then the region of Judea, which Jerusalem would be in. Uh, this was originally given to Herod the Great's, uh, one of his other sons named Archelaus. 
But he was, his reign was troubled and he was soon removed and replaced by a Roman governor, a Roman ruler of the land. And at the time of this account in Luke, this ruler, this governor, uh, he's a prefect, uh, his name is Pontius Pilate. So these are the guys that are ruling in this area. Luke also mentions a guy by the name of Lysanias uh, as Tetrarch of Abilene. This is a region up in Syria, so further north yet. Uh, it's not very clear as to why he's mentioned uh, here by Luke. Uh, he doesn't really factor into the story much. Um, some speculate, think maybe Luke is from that area, and so it's of concern to him. Perhaps uh, Theophilus, who he's writing this account to, uh, has some connection to that area, uh, but we're not sure exactly, and, and he doesn't really factor in beyond this. But that's, so that's the political landscape. Those are the leaders uh, into which this story takes place. Uh, Luke then goes on and mentions that this is during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas in verse 2. So now he's, these are the spiritual leaders of Israel at the time. Now there's only one high priest at a time, so this is a bit odd the way it's written. It seems maybe a bit strange that you've got the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Um, well, Annas was the high priest... But he also, he got in trouble with the Romans and he was deposed. He was removed by them uh, from being the high priest. And eventually, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, took over as high priest. But it's clear in the Gospels that Annas never really goes away. He retains some, some, some uh, influence, significant influence. And it's seen in the fact that later on when Jesus is arrested... He's taken first to Annas before Caiaphas. So Annas still has some clout. He still has some say. Even though technically he's not the high priest, that's Caiaphas. Um, others also talk about it's kind of like a president still retains the title of president even after he's no longer active as president. Uh, that, that also could be what's happening here. Um, but Caiaphas technically is the high priest, but Annas is still around and exerting influence. And so this is the situation. This is... Uh, the world into which John steps uh, to bring about his ministry, into which Jesus will also step to begin his earthly ministry. And in verse 2, we're told that the word of God came to John in the wilderness. Back in 1 verse 70, we're told John was in the wilderness until the day of his ministry. Here, uh, Luke picks up on that. And it says, He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is a summary statement of John's ministry, of what he was doing, of what it was he was proclaiming. Again, we know him as John the Baptist, and obviously uh, his role as a baptizer is significant, uh, but Luke, even more so than the other gospel writers, seems to emphasize John's message of repentance. It's in every gospel, but he seems to emphasize it even a little bit more. And we'll see that in the next couple of weeks as we uh, progress to verse 7 and beyond. Notice in verse 3 also that uh, this was a message he was proclaiming. He was proclaiming or preaching a baptism of repentance throughout the region. His message is summarized this proclamation is summarized as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's message was that the people needed to repent. They needed to repent of their sins. They needed to acknowledge before God that they were wayward. 
that they were in need of His grace, that they needed forgiveness of sins. And John confronted them with their sin, and he called them to repent of it. He called them to mourn their sin, to acknowledge their great guilt before God, and to turn away from it, and to come to God for forgiveness. It's, and it's clear, as we'll see next week in verse 8, the people were not to rely on their lineage as descendants of Abraham in a presumptuous way, to say, well, I'm a, I'm a Jew, I'm a descendant of Abraham, uh, therefore I'm, I'm obviously good to go with the Lord, I'm in this covenant he made with our fathers. Uh, they're not to presume upon that, rather John says they are to repent, they're to turn from their sin. And the baptism that he administered was for those who did this. It was for those who repented. There was a ritual at the time for converts from, uh, so Gentile converts to to Judaism, to go through a baptism. Um, But this, what John's doing here, was new and and would have been to some a, a scandalous thing for a Jew to be baptized to acknowledge that they were not right with the Lord, that they needed to go through this, you know, this, this ritual, this baptism, to realize they need to repent of their sins and come to the Lord that way. And so John's baptism certainly, uh, it symbolized cleansing, but it also had a forward look. It was looking ahead, it was pointing ahead to the one who was coming after John, who would take away sins, and who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. So you see that in verse 16. You can look down there if you want. John says, I baptize with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So he's pointing ahead to the one who's coming after him. And so after Jesus did come, he died on the cross, he rose again from the uh, the dead, Uh, baptism then would take on added significance at that point. Uh, But it's still true, even now, on the other side of his death and resurrection, that baptism is for those who come to the Lord for forgiveness through repentance and faith. Repentance is the necessary response, along with faith, to the gospel. So John, we're told, is preaching good news. He's preaching gospel here. Verse 18 makes that clear. He preached good news to the people. It's the same word we get gospel from. And so his message to people was that the great Savior, the one mightier than him, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, John records for us, He is coming, and that the people needed to repent. Here's, uh, listen to Paul's summary of John's message in Acts 19. It's verse 4 or 5. He says, uh, it says, And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So again, he's pointing ahead to the one coming, Believe in him, and he's calling them to repent. Prepare for him by repentance. And so repentance and faith are really flip sides to the same coin. Repentance is agreeing with God about the nature of your sin, your guilt before him, and it's turning away from it 
while faith is trusting in the Lord Jesus to save and forgive you. They go together. When you see in the, in the scriptures uh, talk of faith, it implies repentance, turning from sin, turning to the Lord in faith. When you see repentance, it's implying faith. You're turning from your sin, you're looking to the Lord Jesus to save you. There are flip sides, or two sides to the same coin. And so John preached that the saving one was coming, and that they were to trust in that promise and repent. But we know, of course, with a little greater clarity than even John's original hearers when he was first teaching to them and preaching to them, that the saving one has come. Jesus has come. And so we now, we look backwards, instead of looking forward to his coming, we look backwards to when he came to Jesus' life, his work on the cross, his resurrection. We look back in faith that he has purchased and secured salvation and is able to save all who come to him in repentance and faith. John's message was repentance. Matthew 3.1 tells us that John preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We know also that he confronted Herod in his, about his unlawful marriage. Telling him to repent. That's what he's doing as he's confronting him. This is not right. You need to repent of it. And that eventually cost John his life. Herod would kill John because of this. His wife would demand it. Herod would pull it off. He'd remove John's head. John's preaching of repentance cost him dearly. It cost him his life. We also see this message is not just out of fashion today, but throughout history. The message has been resisted. It's been fought against. People have not wanted to dance along with that message. But it's nevertheless an essential message. The fact is... Mankind, human beings, are in rebellion against God. And the message of Scripture is to repent, to turn from that. And the good news is that Jesus has come, and there is forgiveness of sins available in His name. That's the great news. And the saving response to that is to repent and to trust Him. Have you done that? Have you felt the weight of your transgression before God? And have you confessed that to Him? Or is your sin no big deal? When you came to faith, was there contrition in your heart over known sinfulness? Or did you just say, sorry? Like a kid who's not really sorry. That's not repentance. Do you bring your sins into the light to be forgiven by God? Or do you make excuses for your sins? As though it's not really a big deal. Though you fail still, do you mourn that fact? Or do you continue to scoff at God's laws and ways? Refusing to bend, refusing to agree that His ways are good and right. God is holy. God is good. He is great. He has provided every good thing that we have ever experienced 
It comes from Him. And yet, even as I say that, some of us go, really? Didn't I earn that or work for that to some extent? I worked really hard at that job. I worked to get that raise. These things come from Him. He controls all things. He's granted you in His grace that blessing, that home, that vehicle, that wage that allows you to put food on the table. It could be gone in a moment, but He's gifted that to you. He's provided all good things, and yet we small creatures have scoffed at Him. We've transgressed His laws and His ways, at times with a fist shaking toward Him. We question His ways. We question His justice. We wonder where He is, and we ask Him that with an accusatory tone. Amazingly, there is forgiveness He offers to people who are like this. And it's received by repentance and faith, through repentance and faith, a gift of His grace. So the call is to repent of our sins and look to Jesus who does save, though we are utterly sinful. John's message was repentance. But secondly... It was not just John's message. Repentance is God's message. We could maybe be tempted to read the story of John the Baptist and see it as maybe a rare one, perhaps dismiss him. After all, we might say, he's a bit of an odd duck. He lived in the wilderness. He wore camel's hair. He ate locusts. That's a strange thing to do. He comes in, he proclaims this message that's also strange, right? Repent, that's weird. We might think maybe that was just a one-off thing. Maybe he's even out of line, I don't know. As I've already said, repentance is found throughout the Bible. And even here, John's message is not his own message. He's not making this up. It's God's message. In verse 2, we're told that the word of God came to John. It came upon John. This is what he was proclaiming God's word. He's a prophet. Zechariah told, uh, the angel told John's father Zechariah, if you recall back in chapter 1, that John would fulfill this role. He was a prophet. He would be a messenger to go before the Lord. So, again, he might seem odd to us. He might seem... Strange, but he's no fringe character. He's a prophet of the Lord, of God Almighty. Read with me uh, again uh, verses 4 to 6. So that the word of the Lord has come to him. He's proclaiming a baptism of, repent- of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then it's tied to to the prophecy of Isaiah. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John's message was from God. The word of the Lord came to him. And it's in fulfillment of the words of Isaiah. This is from Isaiah chapter 40. John is the one crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. 
He's is preaching in the region of the Jordan is this message of preparation. The Lord is coming. The Savior is coming. Get ready, he's telling people. Verse 3 pictures a path being cleared for incoming royalty. The Lord is coming. John preached Jesus, we saw earlier. The one whose sandals he was unworthy to untie. He's coming. Get ready. Prepare the way. Clear the way. And how? How were they to do that? How were they to prepare? What was his message? Repent. Be baptized. Repent. And in this way, prepare. Be ready for the Lord's arrival. Again, Luke is quoting from Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. Matthew and Mark both also quote Isaiah although they don't quote as much of it as Luke does. The passage in Isaiah uh, is, uh, in a, uh, comes at the start of a new section in Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, that highlights the comfort that the Lord will bring to His people and how it is that He's going to bring about salvation. And as the section progresses... In Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, it's clear that he's going to do this work through a particular servant. You think of the the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. There's four servant songs in there. We talked about those a couple weeks ago. It's clear that this servant is going to come and bring about this, this rescue, this salvation, this redemption. And the inclusion of Isaiah 40 here shows that John's message was that This day of salvation is upon them. It's coming. The kingdom has come. The servant will be here any moment. He's on his way. So the people back in Isaiah's day, when he wrote this message of Isaiah 40, they were to prepare themselves by repentance, get ready. How much more now that the Lord is coming on the heels of John's ministry are the people to prepare by repenting? Verse 4 of Luke 3 is John's message. John's message is get ready, prepare the way, make his path straight. And verse 5 is God's work of redemption that is coming. This is what's being prepared for. And it's depicted as a great leveling. Mountains being laid low, valleys being filled in, etc. And so God's work of redemption uh, irons everything out, if you will. The crookedness of the Lord's people will be made straight. The rough edges are smoothed off of them. The arrogant will be brought low, and so on. And so when the Lord comes, there will be no obstacle in His way. Nothing will stop this salvation that He's going to bring. And as we'll see, even as we keep going, uh, those who do not prepare, who do not get ready for this, will suffer under the judgment of the Lord who is coming. We'll see that more in, in coming weeks as we look further at John's message. Ultimately, the, the full picture of salvation that Isaiah depicts uh, comes over Jesus' two comings. So, uh, he came the first time to pay for sins, to bring forgiveness of sins to his people, to deal with our transgressions, and he will come again to bring final judgment and ultimately to usher in the new heavens and new earth, the eternal state. 
The result of this work, of this Lord's work of salvation, this leveling out, in verse 6, is that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. God's salvation is not just for Israel, but also for the Gentiles, all flesh. And so even now, this gospel goes forth into all nations, all over the earth, to the ends of the earth. We are at the ends of the earth from the perspective of Luke, where he was. It's proclaimed this gospel across the globe. And the Lord has purchased for himself people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, Revelation 5.9 says. And of course, there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So in the end, every person, whether ransomed friend or defeated enemy, every person will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Every person will see the salvation of the Lord. And in anticipation of the first coming of the Lord Jesus, in the anticipation of the salvation he's bringing to all flesh, And to his people, God's message through John, which had been prophesied long before John's day in Isaiah, was to prepare for this by repenting. This message of repentance, it's not optional. It's not secondary. Because ultimately, this is God's message. It's preached throughout the Old Testament. It's preached across the New Testament. Consider just a few texts. Mark 1, 14 to 15. Jesus wouldn't be so in your face. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's not very Christ-like. I'm kidding. It's not very dance-like, is it? Mark 6.12, Jesus sends out the twelve. What do they say? Mark 6.12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Peter in Acts 2.38, maybe things have changed. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, maybe that's just the message to Jews. Right? They have a context for this. What did Paul do when he preached to Gentiles? Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance is no, it's no more dispensable to the Christian message than faith is. All throughout the Bible, man is told to repent. Moses preached it. Joshua preached it. Samuel preached it. Jonah preached it. All the Old Testament prophets preached it. John preached it. Jesus preached it. The apostles preached it. And we, likewise, must preach it. And so here in this church, we must call people to repentance. And we don't do this because we... It makes us feel good about ourselves or something like that. Or like a, in a self-righteous way. That's not what this is about. It's God's message. He's the one who says to turn. To turn from your sin and to turn to Him. 
And so we must hold this out to people and, and, and call people to repent and to believe upon Christ. As I said, John pointed forward to the coming of Christ. And now we know J Jesus came, he died, he rose again from the dead. We, we can see what he accomplished on the cross. We have that explained to us throughout the New Testament. But we're also told he will return one day. He's going to return, he's going to bring with him, he's going he's to bring judgment when he returns. He's going to consummate his kingdom. And so we continue to say, prepare the way, be ready for that day. That is, repent. The Lord Jesus will return. I quoted Acts 17.30, and, and where, where Paul tells the, the people of Athens to repent. And God commands all men everywhere to repent. The reason he goes on to state is because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. That the Lord Jesus is returning to bring judgment. He says, in light of that, get ready, prepare, repent. That's how we get ready. Trust the Lord. Look to him for forgiveness. Turn from your sin while there's still time. And so we must continue to hold that out as a church. Call people to repentance. In our homes with our kids, we must bring to them the message of repentance. I remember as a six-year-old going to a children's thing at our church, uh, puppets, they did puppets back then, and uh, I remember distinctly afterwards, my brother had a little booklet with pictures and stuff in it. I said, how do I, where'd you get that? Oh, you go to the front for that. Okay. I went to the front for that. And the next thing I knew, I was repeating after this guy some prayer. And at the end of it, I got a book. And in the back, the date was stamped. And I, I was a Christian. Because uh, I just repeated some things after this guy. And I was in. And there was this stamp to remind me of it. Many of us have been through that, and we chuckle, but it's a tragedy. Because that's not what the Bible tells us to do. The response to the gospel message, the saving response, the Bible says, is to repent and to place our faith in Jesus Christ. And so let us make that more clear to our kids than perhaps it was for some of us. When we evangelize outside of our homes, wherever we might evangelize, we must get to repentance. Because it's not an optional thing. It's part of God's message. Even this week, I uh, got to talk to a man, and as I'm sharing with him what the Bible teaches, we're having a nice conversation and I was thinking to myself, I wonder how this is going to go when we get to the part where uh, this, you know, he needs to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's his only hope. And so we, we, we must seek to have a loving spirit as we do that. But there's going to be times where it's not going to feel like a dance. No matter how unfashionable it may be, and no matter how uncomfortable it may be for us to press that home with others, we must not lose sight of repentance. We must continue to proclaim it as John did. 
Jesus, others throughout Scripture, the apostles. And we must leave the results in God's hands. Many received John's baptism of repentance. There were many who received his message. While others, including Herod and his wife, did not receive it, but instead killed John for it. John understood repentance was literally a hill to die on. He did not compromise that. We must come to God on His terms. And He says, He calls us to repent and to place our faith in Jesus Christ. And He says that for all who do that, you will be forgiven. That all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, we acknowledge and confess to you that we deserve your wrath. You would have been right and just to simply wipe us out. We have sinned against you grievously. And yet in your mercy and grace, you have made a way for sinners to be made right with you. Thank you for opening our eyes to see the truth. Thank you for working faith and repentance in our hearts. God, I pray that anyone who has misunderstood this or who has not come to you through repentance would do so even now. God, would you give us the courage and strength to not compromise on this, but to lovingly and as kindly as we can plead with people to repent and trust Christ. And God, if people react poorly to that, may we trust you with that as well. But God, we do pray that you would save, that you would draw people to yourself, that you would open many eyes to the truth of the gospel. We pray for our children that you would do that for them, that as we hold forth the glory of Christ and as we struggle to teach them the scriptures in our homes, that you would be pleased to draw them. God, we pray for churches around here and throughout our country that they would return to Scripture, return to your word, return to the gospel and preach repentance and faith as the only saving response to the good news that Jesus came to, to die to save sinners. God, we pray that you would even just encourage us with this today, that we would be overjoyed with the fact that you would not leave us in our sin, but send Christ. Make us confident in your ability to save us to the end. God, I pray that you would bless our continued fellowship around tables 
And we just thank you for this church and for these your people. We pray that you encourage them, strengthen them this day. Give them confidence in your salvation. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.